Thank you, Luis and Alma. We turn our attention this morning to the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 1. Verse 6 says this, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Different John. He came as a witness to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of humans, but of God. And the Word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory as of a parent's only son, full of grace and truth. For the Word of God in Scripture for the Word of God among us, and for the Word of God within us, let us say, thanks be to God. So it's New Year's resolution season. Anybody else excited about that? For the next two months, every time you watch a YouTube video, you're going to be interrupted by ads for gyms or ads for home gyms that cost literally as much as it costs to build a gym, I'm pretty sure. Um, or for those uh, healthy, nutritious diet plans that they promise they're not shaming or guilting you, but then they show pictures of people who used to look like you, and then they show pictures of them today, and is that just me? Yeah, thank you for that. Love that. Thanks, Noom. Appreciate it. No, you're not guilting and shaming at all. Um, I like New Year's resolutions in theory. I like the idea of of trying to better ourselves. I really do. Uh, Of being intentional about saying, okay, I'm going to try and make a new commitment. I think that's good. This year, one of the commitments I am making uh, is to try to be more um, um, uh, intentional about using a paper planner. Uh, Yeah, Pastor Kathy may have been the one that inspired uh, this New Year's resolution. Um, (laughs) When you work with a project manager, she goes, can I talk to you for like 10 minutes? And that became an hour, and then I got a paper planner. Yeah, anyways. Uh, So I've done all like the to-do list on the iPhone app, and I've I've done all that stuff. But, but you know, anytime I'm on technology, I'm like one click away from a rabbit hole, right? Anybody else like that? And so, like, me and digital to-do lists just don't work out because an hour later, I'm back on YouTube watching Noom ads. And um, uh, so instead of paper planner, I can't, I can write down the word Amazon, but I can't click the button. It's really good. Um, so uh, in learning to use this planner, they, they have you do this, like, orientation. It's, like, super intense. There's, like, many, many steps to, to understanding truly the power of the paper planner, right? And um, one of the things they have you do, because the whole philosophy is, um, you're really committing your time each week to the things that you say you care most about. Because we all say we care about certain things that, that matter most to us, but then when we look at how we spend our time, it frequently doesn't add up. So one of the things it tells you to do is list out all the roles that you fill as a person, all the roles that you fill as a person. Some of them come pretty naturally, right? So like for me, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a husband, a father, a pastor, you know, those easy. But then I started to sort of run out of ideas of, oh, man, whatever, what other roles do I fill? So it said, oh, here's some example. Here's an example of what you could write. Listen to this. It said, uh, parent, wage earner, financial manager, 
home executive, that sounds nice, family member, marathon runner, grad student, soccer mom, entrepreneur, apprentice chef. And my first thought was like, that's not a real human being. What is going, and then I realized, oh, that's not one person, Scott. Those are different ideas. You could have any of those. And as I was looking over the, I, I filled out some more roles that I fill and I did not put down marathon runner. And um, I was thinking about uh, the message this week is we're starting this new series called The Sacred Community, and we're, we're looking at um, what it means to have a faith that is fully integrated into our life, right? How these great themes of Christianity, the next three weeks we'll talk about hospitality and generosity and cultivating vulnerable relationships, and how these kinds of things can happen not just here in a church building or even amongst us as church people in digital spaces and in-person spaces, um, but can really happen wherever we are. In fact, that's the original design is that faith would go with us wherever we go. And it, I, as I was filling out these roles, it got me thinking about how so frequently I can treat my faith or, or my identity as a person of faith, as simply a role that I, that I put on and take off, right? That I've compartmentalized into certain spaces or certain times in my week, but I, but I don't allow it to affect the other parts of me. Right? I've been guilty of that frequently in my life. I currently am, I'm sure. But is that the original design? Is that, is that the way that God intends faith to be incorporated into our life? And, and after reading the text this morning from John chapter 1, especially verse 14, I think there's, a, there's something different that God is calling us to. So let's look again at, at, that, at that 14th verse. It, it, if you blink, you miss it. And it sounds like pretty normal to those of us who've grown up in the church or have been exposed to Christianity throughout our lives. It's one of those statements that doesn't sound like a big deal, but in the moment, verse 14 was like a big deal for John to put in his gospel. Here's what he said in case you missed it the first time. He said, the word became flesh and made his home among us. The word became flesh and made his home among us. When, when John wrote those words, so much of Christian, Christian theology would come spring forth from that single statement alone. It's important that we break down a couple of words and phrases in that to really understand the punch and power uh, behind this phrase. First, John says the word. And if you're not someone who goes to church very often, maybe this is your first Sunday in a long time. Maybe this is a New Year's resolution for you. I don't know. I hope our YouTube ads worked. Kidding, we don't have YouTube ads. Um, the word is not um, the word the way we use the word, the word in English. I know I'm getting confusing. The word there is a Greek word, logos. And the, and the simplest explanation is it's this Greek philosophical idea that John's kind of leveraging here. And it was this idea of like the perfect concept, the perfect idea John says, was, was made flesh, and that perfect idea was Christ. Now, some of us may come from traditions where we, we treat and call this thing the, the Word of God, right? I try to use the language of the words of God so as to not create confusion, because the Word of God is Jesus. Words of God is scriptural. The Word of God, that perfect idea is Christ. And John says that word, that perfect concept, became flesh. That's the second phrase or word to notice, became flesh. Now, John is hinting at this incarnational theology. He's putting an underscore that previous gospel authors didn't quite make clear enough. John is working with an extra 40, 20 to 40 years of time at this point. His was the last gospel written. But he's making clear that there's something different about this Jesus. This is not simply God with skin on. I'll talk about that a little later. But this is God made flesh, this perfect idea made flesh. This is the eternal cosmic God breaking into history 
in a compelling and uniquely human way. And then the third word or phrase to notice in this verse is that God, the Word of God, made His home, quote, made His home amongst us. The, the Greek word used there literally translates to mean tabernacled with us. You're like, what's a tabernacle, right? Uh, a tabernacle is, is this tent of worship that, that references the Jewish tradition. So John in the single verse is pairing Greek philosophy and Jewish tradition and wrapping it all up into a bow in the person of Jesus. And the tabernacle was this, this tent that went with the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness all those 40 years in the Old Testament. The tabernacle was this idea that wherever they went, God went with them because inside the tabernacle was thought to be the Spirit of God. And so John is saying now, rather than us building a tabernacle for God and God's spirit to go with us, God has built a tabernacle for God's self. God has become the tabernacle in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. The word became flesh and made his home among us. This impacts us in, in three different ways. First, it has an impact on us theologically, this verse. Second, it impacts the way that we function as a church, I think. And third, I believe that it, it leads us to be impacted in the way that we lead our daily lives. So let's talk about each of those. First, theologically. As I said before, this is John making a case for a theology of incarnation, which is a really big fancy term that means um, God with us in the flesh in the person of Jesus. Previous gospel authors had gotten at this idea with Jesus being the Son of God, but there was more theological development in the years that followed before John wrote his gospel. And by this point, we, there was a more sort of nuanced understanding of the Trinity and how all these things work together. And so John's able to make this really clear, compelling message that, no, God did not just come down and put on a, a human suit, right? You'll hear pastors or, or authors sometimes talk about God with skin on. And, and that's a helpful phrase. It's sort of a casual phrase to help understand uh, the person of Jesus. But, but it undercuts the theology of incarnation in a way that's really important. See, I can, I can put on an outfit and go pretend to be someone that I'm not, right? If I'm going to go to the Renaissance fair, I can get dressed up in my Renaissance clothing. But that doesn't made, make me the Lord Duke of... Uh, Something. I don't, I don't, I've never been to a Renaissance fair. Sounds super cool. Just haven't done it. Um, I could put on a red polo and walk around Target like I work there, right? Be mistaken for an employee. Right? Doesn't make me a Target employee. Um, God with skin on sounds a lot like the way that maybe the Greek myths talked about how gods would come down and sort of kick it with humans for a little bit and, and pretend to be one, but they never really were one, right? They were just walking around and pretending. You know, John says something different. God, it says, John says that God was made flesh. This isn't just God with skin on. This is God becoming human. The really fancy theological term for this is hypostatic union. Why? Because theologians love to be stuffy and up in ivory towers where people can't understand what they're talking about. I learned this in seminary. Um, hypostatic union is a fancy phrase that simply means Jesus being fully human and fully divine. Which is it? is it? Is it God with skin on, or is it a person that became God? Something else entirely, right? Jesus is this one person who is fully human and fully divine. God made flesh. It can be easier for our binary thinking to put up borders and divisions in the way that we process information, the way that we understand and categorize our lives. And the incarnation of Jesus itself challenges that notion to believe that maybe life can be more fully integrated than is easy for us to comprehend at first. Jesus is literally too much person for us to wrap our minds around. And maybe that's 
an important thing to understand as we seek to follow after him. I believe that in Jesus, John is claiming that the line between human and divine was irreversibly blurred. God became flesh. This moment in history actually affects eternity because now God understands what it means to be in the flesh for all time. This statement would have been more scandalous for those who wanted to keep God safe and upstairs. It would have been more provocative for those who were on the ground level and wondering, how the heck do I get to God? But I think also it would have been ultimately, John believes it would be ultimately more accurate in understanding than the earlier, than the earlier gospels were able to provide. It's not just that Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus was God. This was God in the flesh amongst us. Incarnation is a theological idea that then affects so much about who we are and what we do. Let's talk about the church in light of this incarnational theology, this idea that Jesus blurs the lines between human and divine. I think on the one hand, if God with skin on is kind of that tourist mentality, let me, let me put on this costume and pretend to be someone I'm not. Um, then sometimes we also get in the habit of what I would call tourist church, right? Let me go and, and put on my churchiness and pretend to be something that I'm not and then take it off when I get out, right? I've been that way in my life previously, right? Anybody else gone to a tourist church before, been a touristy kind of church goer? I think it's easy to fall into that habit. It's the idea that the church is where I go to, to do faith. I walk in, I do my faith thing, I walk out, I take my faith thing off, right? It's not, that's a role that I play, but it's not who I am. But I believe God's calling Arapaho to be an incarnational kind of church. And I, I see us being an incarnational kind of church. We were this way before I ever got here. And it's where we, we go to church, not just to do faith, but rather to be equipped to then live out my faith beyond the walls or beyond the spaces where I come to church. We come here not just to simply do faith, but to be equipped to live out our faith. It, it, the incarnational church concept, it challenges the consumer-driven model that, that our culture uh, has permeated in every aspect of life. Think about the way that we interact with businesses or organizations or institutions in our life. It's a, it's a tourist kind of institutional pr practice. It's a, it's a business model predicated on creating a continued need or a benefit in the form of what the institution can do for you, right? This is the way that businesses and institutions and organizations are built. Think about uh, your iPhone, right? iPhone comes out, it's like a supercomputer in your hand. Two years later, it's a brick because they released too many operating system updates and it's planned obsolescence. So that then you have to go back to the AT&T store and guess what? Get a new iPhone, right? They planned it that way. It's the way it works. Yeah, it could keep working for 50 years, but they don't care. They want it to break. They don't want it to work because they want you to come back and get something new. Think about rewards programs. I love rewards programs. I go to Kroger, I've got my little thing on my key fob. Oh, you got a rewards? Oh yeah, I got my rewards. You saved 87 cents. Yes, eat it, Kroger. You're not taking those 87 cents from me. I love it, but what does it do? It means I come back, I come back, I come back, I come back because they're showing me this is what we can do for you if you keep coming back here. I think sometimes the church can fall into this pattern as well. The difference between a tourist church and incarnational church, think about the difference between the mechanic franchise you go and get your oil changed, what do they do every time? What do they do every time you go to get your oil changed? They walk in with your dirty cabin air filter. Ooh, you're gonna wanna get this swapped out. I can do it for you for 50 bucks. If you've never done it before, you're like, shoot, I don't know what to do with this. 
50 bucks, okay, sure, do it. What they're not telling you is the AutoZone across the street will sell you that for $20. You can go on YouTube for three minutes. You can do it yourself. They're not going to tell you that because they want you to come back next time and get your oil changed, and then what's going to happen? Ooh, that last air filter got dirty pretty quick. You're going to need a new one, another 50 bucks, right? Difference between that and going to your buddy who knows how to work on cars, going to his garage and him saying, let me show you how to change out a cabin air filter. It's going to take three minutes, and you're never going to have to pay someone to do it again, right? I think there's a lot of churches that operate out of the franchise model where we want you to come, we want you to listen, consume, We'll give you a rewards program. We're going to give you everything that you think you need, but we're going to do it in a way that forces you to come back and come back and come back because you're terrified you can't do it on your own. When the reality is we want to have churches, and I think this is the kind of church that wants to be the kind of place that says, let me show you how to change out a cabin air filter so you don't have to keep paying 50 bucks every single time. Let me show you how you could form a small group in your own neighborhood so you don't have to think that you have to come here in order to find friends. Let me show you how you could start a ministry in your neighborhood when you notice a need so you don't have to drive 50 miles to go and do something for people that you don't live near when you know the need is in your own backyard, right? Do we understand the difference between the tourist church and an incarnational church? Incarnation challenges the consumer-driven culture that permeates us. What kind of relationship are we expecting from our church? One of purchase and provision? I come here, I give a little bit of myself, and I get what I need in return? Or... Are we expecting a relationship of empowerment and equity? Where rather than me being up in my seat of power saying, let me throw you whatever morsels I desire, we can instead learn to be brothers and sisters and siblings together. And I can learn just as much from you as you can learn from me, probably more so. It requires us to shift our thinking that the primary place of ministry is an official gathering of church folks. The primary place of ministry, my friends, is your home or my neighborhood or all the places where God has placed us. That's the primary place of ministry. Not this hour on Sunday mornings. Not the small group that meets on Wednesday evenings. Those things are good. The primary place of ministry is wherever you're gonna be in about 45 minutes. That's the primary place of ministry. So that's the effect that incarnational theology has an effect on us as an organization, institution, moves us to incarnational style church, equipping and empowering. But what does it mean for us as individuals? It means, from moving, it means we move from a tourist faith to an incarnational faith. We move from a personal faith where we put on and take off person of faith as a role and instead begin to see faith as fully integrated and flowing through every single aspect of our lives, impacting the little choices we make, the little moments in between the big ones. In his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul says, to rejoice always and to pray without ceasing. It's a classic Paul setting the bar way too high, right? Now, Paul wasn't a monk. He didn't sit around saying the Lord's Prayer unending on a daily basis. What he means by that, rejoice always and pray without ceasing, what he's getting at is this integrated faith into our life to the extent that it's impossible to see the divisions, kind of like it's impossible to see the divide between Jesus the human and Jesus the God. In the same way, an incarnational faith makes it where it's impossible to see the divide between where our faith stops and our life begins. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, had a similar concept when he talked about personal and social piety. Personal piety being those things that we do in our own personal spiritual practices, scripture reading, prayer, um, uh, spending time of devotion, perhaps by ourselves, perhaps with others. But then there was a social holiness aspect of his faith that he said went hand in hand, and you couldn't have one without the other. And the social holiness was getting out in the community and impacting things like education and healthcare 
and your local neighborhood, to take care of the people in your, in your own spaces, wherever you were, to notice and to provide for the needs, to see one another as, as potential relationship partners and, and not just strangers that live on the same street as you. When we begin to integrate faith into our lives in a meaningful way, I think that we'll begin to see that the play date with the new neighbors is just as important as the prayer or personal devotion. Both are ministry. Both are works of faith, right? Lord, if you were at a play date I've been at recently, it's a real work of faith. My son's screaming. If y'all heard the tornado siren yesterday, that was Jude. We'll begin to see that the board meeting is just as important as the church committee meeting, right? Our workspaces, we don't need to become religious nut jobs that, that make people uncomfortable in our workspaces, but we can go about our work in a way that we know is faithful. We can understand that the budgeting process at work could be a place where we could exercise faith. That the school board meeting could be a place where we exercise faith just as much as the mission fund meeting here at AUMC. The weekly game night with friends who honestly think that it's weird that you still go to church is just as important as the Bible study. It's all ministry and faith touches it all. The faith that we find in Christian community or in spiritual disciplines is meant to integrate incarnationally into the lives that we lead. We tend to draw lines of division in our lives while God tries to blur them. That is the message of Jesus in the Gospel of John, that God has come to blur the lines so that no longer do we have to believe that God's up here and I'm down here. No longer do we have to believe that faith is in here and life is out here. No longer do we have to believe that the church is right here and the world's somewhere else but all the lines are being blurred. All of it is being integrated into one another. There's a oneness that Jesus calls us into. And so as we begin to reflect on what it means to build sacred community, whether, yes, it's in this physical space in the sanctuary, whether, yes, it's in the digital space of our online community, yes, maybe it's on a Zoom call, though I don't really get a lot of faith from Zoom calls. I mainly get frustration. But wherever we think that faith is found in the Christian community, it can also be found in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our streets, in our workplaces. Wherever God has placed us, those are fertile grounds for ministry and faith. Allow the lines to be blurred. The sacred community is not just here, it's wherever we are. Tech team, I'm gonna to walk to the left, be advised. Psych, I need this piece of paper. Oh, got you again, all right. This Sunday, in addition to being the start of a new worship series, it's also Baptism of the Lord's Sunday. Now, for those of you who don't know, it's a day in the Christian calendar when we as Methodists remember that Jesus was baptized just like many of us were. And as an adult, Jesus came to the waters of baptism looking to affirm God's love, not just for him, but for all of humankind. And it's in the waters of baptism that each year we come back and we remember not just Jesus' baptism, um, but for those of us who've been baptized, we remember our own. And even if you've never been baptized, these are important words to hear because it lets you know the kind of covenant that we seek to make as a Christian people. And as we talk about an integrated faith, as we talk about living in a sacred community, I can think of no other place to end this morning than through the waters of baptism. Because the waters of baptism remind us that God's love flows. As I said with the kids earlier today, it flows and goes with us wherever we are. Water has a way of working itself into the smallest of cracks and the hardest to reach of places, even the ones you can't see. And the waters of baptism remind us that God's love covers not just us, but then sends us out in the world as pitcher bearers, looking to then 
pour God's waters upon the places that need it the most, the places that are driest and thirstiest for God's love. And so I'm going to read for us the United Methodist Covenant of Baptism. I want you, if you feel comfortable, to close your eyes and hear these words and really listen and consider how it is that God is leading you to live this covenant out, not just in a sanctuary, not just in a Bible study, but in the streets, in the grocery stores, in the play dates, in the boardrooms of wherever you find yourself. Hear now these words. Do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of your sin? It's another way of saying, do you recognize that the life we've been living to this point may not be the life that we want to lead forever? Do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? Do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, put your whole trust in his grace, and promise to serve him as your Lord, in union with the church which Christ has opened to people of all ages, nations, and races? If you do, My goodness, don't let these waters stop here. If you do, set up a bowl of water in your home this week. Touch it on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. If you do, remember that Christ came down not simply to show us a new way to live, but to encourage and invite us into practicing our faith in an incarnational, integrated way. May these waters change us. May they sustain us. May they transform us all in the love of God. Amen.